Hey, everybody on Facebook and YouTube or on SoundCloud or our podcast. Today, we talk men, women, gender roles and differences, wives, husbands, submission and authority. This is sure to be a lighthearted conversation. Welcome to the deep end. This is the deep end podcast. Hello, everybody on Facebook, everybody on YouTube. You can access this talk on YouTube just in case Facebook cuts us off. Uh, maybe like they did last week. Mm. We don't know if that was the case, <laughs> but we are back today. And in the comment section, either on YouTube or Facebook, let us know where you're watching from. We love to know that stuff and we love to hear from you. And then because of the sensitive nature of this conversation, discussion is encouraged. Questions are wanted. Please ask them. I'll do my best to answer them. But welcome with me into the podcast studio today, Shane Parsons, our executive pastor. Hello. And one of our video tech people here, Bria McGee. Hi. Hi, Bria. Hello. Welcome in and uh, glad to have you here. First time on the podcast. Yes. Now I'm you're usually, usually yeah. <laughs> over yeah. there producing it. So kind of switch roles. And you have a nice big coffee mug there. I see yes. you've doubled up. You've got the Dunkin' Donuts. Yep. I'm prepared. And the and coffee mug. One's water, one's coffee. Oh, okay. They like switch containers. I'm going to say you might have a problem. That was all coffee. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, welcome in, everybody. And today we have Bria and we have Shane and myself to talk about something that needs to be talked about today in regards to um, something that we're all dealing with every day of our lives the roles of men and women, gender, the church. What does God say about this? What does the Bible say about this? And I'm hoping that those of you who may even disagree with what the scriptures teach about um, gender roles and all those sorts of things, I hope that you will have a, a, a open-heartedness to the conversation, that you will uh, listen in. And even if you disagree, uh, there will be Charity on both sides for both of us to disagree with respect. But um, for those of you who are part of our church, we call this our Wednesday night Bible study on your time. Back in the old days when we were really Christians, we would go to church three times a week. Mm. Now we'd lucky to see you once or twice a month. <laughs> now, uh, so we used to do these Wednesday night Bible study talks. And what would happen is a pastor would take a church through a book of the Bible in Bible study. And 1 Corinthians is the Bible book that we are going through on the podcast. And so we have reached, believe it or not, finally, having started this way back in August, right, Michael? We have finally reached chapter 11. Oh. And I don't mean bankruptcy <laughs> of 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 to 16, I'm going to read it. And then I'm going to ask for your prayers as we talk about it. <laughs> as I read it, you're going, to, you're going to realize why I need your prayers. So here's what Paul says. Uh, he changes gears drastically from the gray area conversation that lasted like three chapters, chapters 8 through 10. Now in chapter 11, he's going to change gears into this topic of corporate worship and some things that were going on in Corinth in the first century and things that we still wrestle with today in the 21st century about how we are to come together as the church and worship God in a way that honors the Lord Jesus Christ and at the same time reflects humanity as God intended it to be from the creation. So here we go, verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand, Paul says, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of, a, and, and then the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, and that was Eve came from Adam's rib, if you remember, so man is now born of woman. And every living man on the face of the earth owes his life to a woman. And all things are from God. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. It is 
Is it proper, he says, for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So that is our text today. Are we excited about this? Here we go. Real light stuff. <laughs> Real light stuff here. Buckle up. Uh, this is not an easy topic, and this is not an easy text to talk about, uh, no matter who you are. One commentator I read about this passage said, said the following. This passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text comp- of comparable length in the entire New Testament. A survey of history of interpretation reveals how many different exegetical options there are for a myriad of questions and should inspire a fair measure of tentativeness on the part of the interpreter. In other words, interpreter. In other words, if you venture into this passage, do so humbly because Whoa. this is deep and it is difficult. But I do want to say that what Paul talks about here definitely connects to where he comes from in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10. Because 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, he was talking about not letting Christian liberty, in other words, you're free in Christ and you are free from the the constraints of the law and you're free from the free from the constraints of cultural mandates and free from the constraints of whatever societal structure has been forced upon you but don't let your christian liberty then become an opportunity for you to be arrogant and dismissive of um proper behavior that is uh that is conscientious to your Christian brothers and sisters all around you. And at the same time, your Christian liberty should not let cause you to walk in outright rebellion to the word of God and the, and the clear rules and guidance of scripture. And at the same time, your Christian liberty should create a Christian community that is distinct from the culture in which it resides and is also a witness to that culture of what life could look like as we walk in the honor and the fear of the Lord. At first sight, this passage seems to be saying, men, when you go to church, don't be wearing hats. And women, when you go to church, make sure you wear a hat. (laughs) Right? And so a purely elementary reading of this passage would be, men don't wear hats, women wear hats, the end, let's pray. But there's more to it than that. And that's why you need people like me, this this is how I earn my living right here, to take the ancient text of the Bible and make it applicable for a very modern context because though the context the contextual issues change all the time and over the course of generations the eternal principles of the word of god into every context abide forever so basically the theme about this passage is how are we as men and women to come before the lord in corporate worship in a way that honors christ and does not offend unnecessarily the culture around us. That's really what it is. How do we come together as men and women to worship Jesus in our corporate gatherings as the church and do so in a way that, number one, honors Christ, and number two, does not outright offend the culture around us? And this is important because the church is to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So we have to have and maintain a healthy environment in our gatherings that is both attractive to the culture and at the same time distinct from the culture. And that is constantly like a, a, a debate that we have in the offices here. It is always a, the aim of our staff and our, and our meetings and our planning and our strategy. Uh, Bria and Shane, you guys know you're part of this, to how do we be uh, culturally relevant and at the same time scripturally truthful? Yep. You know, So we're always having these conversations. Yep. And that's nothing new to the church. The church has always had to wrestle with these things. But there are timeless principles in this passage that we need to talk about. So the topic today, I love the topic, God, church, and gender dysphoria. Hmm. Now, let me just make sure we're clear. If we suddenly get, off, get cut off Facebook, <laughs> we will know why. Um, because this topic probably will not be harmonious with many of the... Um, many of the quality control agents over there in Silicon Valley. Uh, We understand what perspective of the world they come from. It is not the perspective of uh, many Christian views regarding genders and regarding sexuality. So if we get cut off at Facebook, go over to YouTube. If they cut us off there, well, just keep coming to church. (laughs) We'll get it to you one way or the other. We We are the underground and we are proud. Okay. But I think that uh, Zuckerberg is a little bit busy right now over there yeah. in Capitol Hill. Yep, he's, he's distracted. Yeah, he's down there getting him his um yeah 
His keister kicked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's what Paul says. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. He first says, I commend you because you're maintaining the traditions, which is really important to see. Because First Corinthians, we have seen, has not been a very happy-go-lucky letter from Paul to the Corinthians. He has been correcting them every step of the way mm-hmm. about almost everything that's wrong with him. And uh, yet here in verse 2 of chapter 11, he says, wait, first, I do have some good things to say. And this is like the first good thing he said about the Corinthians. He says, I commend you because you're holding on to the, the, the traditions that we taught you. And when he's talking about traditions, he's talking about those church traditions that are necessary for every culture and every generation. Now, Waters Church, and you know this if you come, we are the lights, smoke, camera, action church. Not just lights, camera, action. Lights, smoke, smoke, camera, action. Need that smoke because you yep. need that smoke. It's Old Testament. It's biblical. <laughs> God, God. They followed the pillar of smoke, the pillar of cloud by day. So, praise God for smoke. <laughs> and so, if you come to our church, you will see that we are one of those modern, fandangled churches with all the, you know, concert style worship and the preacher who dresses hip and cool. Where? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Well, I think he does. Shut it, you over there. Sorry. Uh, you know, the you know, I'm not in a shirt and tie, or as you like to call my leisure suit. It's been hung up once and for all. Yes, the leisure suit. I used to wear a leisure suit. Now I don't, I know I've been set free. Now I wear hoodies. Um, but you know, we are one of those modern kind of churches, if you want to call it that. That really. What we do a lot of times is we boast about the fact that we're, we don't hold on to traditions. We try to get rid of traditions. You know, we're not going to be old and starchy. We're not going to have you sit in hard wooden pews and read from old hymnals written in the 1700s and sing songs by guys that have been dead for over 300 years. Um, we are going to sing modern songs. We're going to talk about modern concepts, and we're going to present the ancient word of the Bible in modern ways. However, all that being said, and listen to me, there are some traditions that we must never challenge and must never eliminate as the people of God. Some traditions are eternal. For instance, the tradition of coming together as the church, we never want that to stop. (laughs) Uh, The tradition of the Lord's Supper, you know, some churches call it communion, some people, you know, Catholics call it the Eucharist. Uh, It depends on your church tradition. But this idea of coming together around a meal and eating the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and however you see that, uh, that is an eternal tradition for the church, or, or at least in this age. We are all pointing in that meal back to the cross, and we are pointing forward to the return of Jesus for this age uh, until he comes again. That is a tradition that we still partake of today here at Water Church. As modern as we are, every first Wednesday we have communion, and every uh, Good Friday we have communion, and about once every quarter we have it on the weekend. That's never going to go away. Uh, Another tradition, the tradition of baptism will, will not go away until Christ returns. So we want you to get baptized. We think you should get baptized. If you are on the fence about getting baptized, uh, you should be baptized if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he commands you to be baptized. It it does not save you, but it is a command for those who are saved Mm -hmm. to follow through in the waters of baptism. And so that will never go away. You know, we're never going to stop baptizing people. As much as we want to be modern and relevant, we have to balance that with being godly and orthodox in our faith practice. Now, here's another tradition that we don't talk about a lot in the church, but we need to because of the context in which we live today. The tradition that men and women are different, and they are different to the glory of the God who created them. This is a tradition that harkens all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And this is a tradition that is affirmed and reiterated all throughout the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, and in the teachings of Jesus, and in the teachings of Paul, Peter, John, and the rest of the disciples, and Orthodox uh, historic Christian faith. The Christian faith has done more good for defining properly the roles of men and women, I believe anyway, than any other religious movement on the face of the earth. Up until just a few decades ago in India, uh, widows were still being burned on the funeral pyre of their deceased husband. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, for anybody who wants to explore the foreign religions of the other, um, you know, uh, wor- of the other sides of the world, uh, be careful. And, and, and still to this day, we see how Islam uh, de- designates uh, women's behavior and delegates and actually regulates women's behavior yeah. in ways that are, in many respects, uh, disrespectful to women. And, and, and so while we live in a culture that tends to deride the Christian worldview, we have to 
study our history properly. And I'm always telling you guys this on the weekends, and I tell you this repeatedly in the podcast. Please study history properly. Uh, it's not being taught anymore in public schools properly. Uh, you have to do your own homework here. You have to read the right books, and you have to get educated about the role of Christianity, the benefit of the Christian faith and the Christian worldview to societies and generations of societies and freedoms that we take for granted today, okay? Today, we are living in a time and an age where the gender roles and distinctions are being challenged in unprecedented ways. Now, I'm just going to say bluntly, America is losing its mind <laughs> when it comes to sexuality. Again, I hate to talk about this stuff. I don't want to talk about these things. I think I, I wish everybody just understood this is what God says and we all lived it and we believed it. But there's so much confusion coming in, especially into the minds of our young people today. So much confusion from so much uh, of the media, social media, uh, entertainment industry, uh, even the political uh, uh, divide. Uh, so much confusion about what makes a man a man and what makes a woman a woman and why are those distinctions important and good for one another. Uh, we have to talk about this in the church. So I have a God-given responsibility to defend the truth of the, of the Word of God for generations coming up after me, uh, for young people like you, Bria, yeah. and as a good reminder to old people like you, Shane. And we're here. To talk about the truth of God for all generations. And I hope that one day there will be a generation after me who is still holding on, and I believe there will, because God is always, Jesus is always going to build his church no matter what the culture does. Yep. Anyway... There's a there's a YouTube channel that you should pay attention to. I think anyway, it's called PragerU. I, I really love their videos. PragerU. Um, this guy is a conservative Jewish man who runs this video channel. It's it's really good. But they did one on the genders and the role and the gender confusion that's hitting America right now. Here's a transcript of one of their videos, and you can look it up. It's about gender identity and confusion. But here's here's the opening of the script of that video, and you can find it on YouTube. It says it's now okay for a man to hit a woman. That, in effect, is what a mixed martial arts league decided when it allowed Fallon Fox, a biological male, to fight as a woman simply because he identifies as one. And the consequences of this decision? Fox sent female fighter Tamika Brents to the hospital with a broken skull and a concussion. Brents needed several surgical staples to bind her wounds. The battered woman, a trained fighter herself, set up the match with Fox, a biological male who identifies as a woman. I've never felt so overpowered in my life. 20 years ago, if a man hit a woman so hard that he sent her to the hospital, he'd be in prison. Now he gets paid for it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty uh, damaging to the, to the view of uh, these gender confusion people. Today, progressives think that we should let children determine what gender they are. This is insanity. Today, there's no easy way to put it. Uh, we are being pushed and we are being even legislated in many respects against, uh, against traditions regarding males, females, what biology is supposed to do for us and teach us. And I believe that eventually what the Bible says and what the Christian, the true Christian church says about gender will be provocative will be thought crazy and eventually maybe even one day illegal. Like, for instance, we may be cut off of Facebook for this talk. Who knows? <laughs> but it's headed in that direction, friends. It really is. And you got to pay attention yep. to what's happening in the laws of our land. California, right now, the legislature out there in California, we need to pray for them. There's an LGBT caucus that recently sent a bill to the California legislature that bans counselors from providing counseling uh, uh, for adults and children um, against their unwanted same-sex attraction or gender confusion. The bill would make it unlawful for any person to sell books, counseling services, or anything else that directs people to trust in Jesus Christ to help them overcome their unwanted same-sex attraction or gender confusion. What is crazy is this. If a girl feels that she is a boy and she wants to be a boy, there is plenty of help and legal protections to help her transition into being a male. But if that same girl feels like she's a boy but wants to remain a boy... It, is it would be, under this bill, illegal to help her remain a girl. For Did I say that state? right? For the whole state. Yeah, this, yeah, for the state of California. This is, the, this is the legislature of California. They're about to, they're trying to pass this bill. So if a girl feels like she's a boy, but she doesn't want to be a boy, she'd rather be a girl, okay? There's no legal right to help her remain a girl under the terms of this bill. This is craziness. Yeah. This is where we are going as a country. This is where Canada. we're going as a society. Next Monday is the Boston Marathon. I don't know if you guys know that. No. It's Marathon Monday, next Monday. And they just made a big announcement, because they always have to do this now, a big announcement that you can run as a woman if you identify as a woman, no matter what you were born. 
You can run as a male if you identify as a woman, uh, as a male, if you were, even if you were born a woman. Someday, generations from now, I think, I really believe, someday, generations from now will wonder, what the heck was wrong with these people? I know. What, what were they thinking? What was in the water in the, in the early 21st century? So while I have the chance, and as long as it's not illegal to say some things about this, let me speak truth to these very contentious ideologies. What we see today, friends, is nothing new. It is all stemmed in an ancient cult called Gnosticism. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Gnosticism was an ancient cult in the pagan world. It was this view that the... The material doesn't matter. It's actually from Plato. Uh, Plato had a, thought, a philosophy called Platonic dualism. There was the material world and there was the spiritual world. And it was the quest of the human condition to get out of the material world altogether and to be absorbed into the spiritual nothingness, you know. And so, you know, this actually invaded the Christian church in the first century too. And a lot of the writings of John attack Gnosticism head on. In fact, the incarnation attacks Gnosticism because Gnosticism believes that you got to get away from all that is material and get into the spiritual. And the fact that Jesus, God the Son, became flesh and took on flesh actually was a death knell to the Gnostic ideas. And and um, and one of the one of the one of the primary values of Gnosticism was uh, asexuality was the ideal. Um, the, the, the pristine ideal of humanity. So to not identify with what your physical gender said was uh, it was a Gnostic ideal because, again, the material is irrelevant and the spiritual is everything. So how you feel and what you sense inside of you is far more important than the physical reality around you. That's just ancient Gnosticism. And guess what, friends? It's coming back. It's coming back because this is exactly where the transgenders get their view. No longer does science and no longer does biology tell us who we are or what we are. Now, what tells us who we are and what we are? Our feelings. Yeah. Our that feelings. That parallel is What's that? crazy. That parallel. It's crazy. Yeah. It's nothing. But again, the point again is it's nothing new. Like we think this is progressive. It's not progressive. It's regressive. It's going backwards. And we have to realize this. Um, yeah. You know, there, so there's this confusion today. And, and, and I like to say it like this, like if the 21st, if the 20th century used science to eliminate faith and religion, the 21st century is using feelings to eliminate science, right. which is incredible. But it all comes back to men want, men and women want to be their own gods, their own determiners of truth, their own you know, formers of reality and, you know, cursed be those ancient, you know, fallacies of biology that we used to, you know, <laughs> imprison ourselves into. <laughs> now, I want to say first, a defense of the church, a defense of the church, friends. No movement in human history has brought more freedom, dignity and equality to the human race than the church of Jesus Christ. Do any amount of research and you will find out that what I'm saying is absolute truth. The Christian faith has taught for generations that all people, regardless of sex, race, social status, or income, are equal in the eyes of God. No faith teaches that. Christianity teaches that. Well, Judaism teaches that. But Christianity te took, that took that truth and rooted it in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Mm. The early church was... The, were the ones who in the Roman world brought in and cared for the least of these. Why? Because they heard about their Savior saying, when you do anything good unto the least of these, you do it unto me. They took those words seriously. So they loved their poor neighbors. They loved the outcasts. They loved the imprisoned. They loved the sick. They loved the dying. And this had a profound effect on the Roman world. Rodney Stark, a sociologist, wrote a fantastic book about the rise of Christianity. It's actually called The Rise of Christianity. And he talks about the main reason why Christianity took over the Roman Empire in the third century, which really it did, was not because of Christian imperialism or colonialization. They didn't have the right to imperialize anybody or colonialize. They had no rights whatsoever. It was an illegal faith. But what did make the Christians, what did help or empower Christianity to have such an amazing cultural impact to the point that by the 4th century AD, it becomes the legalized and official uh, religion of the Roman Empire, because when you can't beat them, join them, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Rodney Stark says that what made that happen 
was that during the the plagues of the second and third century, where the pagans were casting out their loved their sick loved ones into the streets, the Christians came along and picked them up and brought them into their homes. Wow. The Christians did this. The Christians cared for even to their own death, the dying, the sick, the lame of the pagans. And when the pagans saw these Christians do this, they couldn't stop them. And it made such a profound impact that they became Christian. Many of them became Christians themselves. And so I say that, I say all that to say this, if we are going to change America, if we're going to win back American consciousness to Christian values, it's going to be through our good works. It's going, to, it's going to be through our love for our neighbor. So, again, while I share all these things that are Christian in view, friends, and some of you may be watching and you're not Christian, I don't expect you to agree with me if you're not Christian. But this is Christian view. Uh, Christ, these are Christian views that we share with Christian believers uh, to empower the Christian life. But we also believe that it is beneficial for all people, regardless of their religion, because I believe that the Bible holds the keys to truths that cause humans to flourish and right. not and not to be harmed. It was the Christians, friends, who worked to abolish the slave trade in England in the 1700s. William Wilberforce, part of Parliament, who worked tirelessly and endlessly, and in many ways gave up his life to uh, make the slave trade illegal. It was Christians who worked to abolish slavery in this nation in the 1800s with the Stowe family, Harriet Beecher Stowe and, and her father and many of the abolitionists. And it was Yes, some Christians used the Bible ignorantly to justify slavery, but their opposition were other Bible-believing Christians who told them, have you not read the second book of the Bible? God sets the slaves free. It's called Exodus. Read it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Um, even last century, a woman's rights leader, Susan B. Anthony, she was a Christian. Okay, She was a Christian who believed that men and women were equal, and she based those beliefs on Scripture. Today, Christianity is being derided. Today, Christianity is being undermined. Today, Christianity is being uh, uh, be, being castigated as some kind of you know uh, ancient imperialistic uh, uh, misogynistic cult, and it is not. It is the most glorious, most beneficial movement in human history. Christians gave us hospitals. Christians gave us orphanages. Christians gave us education, the rights to education. These come from Christians. Do accurate research and you will learn that what I'm saying is true. I get fired up about this because I have young people who are in the public school system right now and they're getting indoctrinated about how bad Christianity is. And it's a shame. It's a shame that those same institutions which are in place because of Christians in the first place are now deriding the very faith that brought about their institution in the first place. Mm. Somebody get me a pulpit. I'm ready yeah, to preach. Anyway, you've got to realize this stuff, friends. And this is why we do the deep end. This is why we do these talks on Wednesday because we need to instruct you in the Word of God. The Word of God is life, truth, peace. Amen. Paul goes on, though. He says, look, I commend you. You've helped out some, some traditions, but now I need you to understand these, under, these traditions. So you need, to understand, you need to understand first that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about authority. He's talking about that God is a God of authority, and the authority of every man is Christ. And by man there, he means every man and woman. The authority of mankind is Christ. But then he goes about husbands and wives. He goes about into this um, relationship. He says, in, in the case of husbands and wives, there has to be a leader. There has to be a head. You can't have two heads. Anything with two heads is a monster, and it should be killed. You have to have one head for every organization. So he says, in a marriage, the man is the head of the wife. That means that he has authority over his wife. Okay. Then he says, the head of Christ is God. Even Christ Jesus said this repeatedly in John chapter 6. He said, I can't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. Um, the Father, uh, you know, leads me. I do all that my Father says, and I do nothing that he doesn't say. So Christ understood headship. Christ was submitted to the authority of the Father. Submission is like the S word in the church, right? It's like the S word. Yep. Not, not that other S word that you're thinking of, <laughs> Pastor Shane. <laughs> the, the, the S word submission is like a dirty word in the church because we think, oh, oh, submission. Oh, that's, that's oh, that's antiquated. That's, right. that's for when women were getting, you know, barefoot and pregnant and stuck in the kitchen for their entire lives. And so uh, we need to redeem this term because this term is not a bad term. Actually, this term is a very healthy term because if you think about it, if Christ Jesus himself submitted, then submission can't be that bad. Right. Actually, it might be a Christ-like thing. And everybody has to submit to somebody. Um, 
Men have to submit to Christ. Men have to submit to God. We, the church, where where it doesn't conflict with the with the with the scriptures, the church has to submit to governing authorities. You know, so if you get pulled over by a speeding ticket and get a speeding ticket, you, you can't say I'm sorry, I'm a Christian. I I don't receive that. <laughs> that, that won't I mean, work. you can try. Yeah, I've tried but... that. It does not work. Yeah, <laughs> and your father Bria, is a state was a state cop. Yeah. I'm sure uh, he didn't get that excuse, but he, never, he probably never pulled me over. <laughs> but nonetheless, you have to pay the fine, friend. And you can't, you can't claim that you're being persecuted because you're a Christian. Don't be stupid. You broke the law, pay the fine. But there is authority in the church, and there is the concept of headship. Now, in the home, we usually see that authority is misunderstood or is misused or is disregarded. It really is especially when it comes to man and wife, man and wife. Oh, love and marriage, love and marriage, right? Um, the, the, the woman submits to her husband. The man takes authority and leaves the house. Okay, here's what I've seen. And I think, I think this, this is probably, you know, most people have seen it this way. It is not, the problem usually is not that the woman subverts her husband. The problem usually is that the man refuses to take proper authority. The man does not step up and lead. And because there's an absence of leadership, the woman says, well, I guess I'll do it. <laughs> and I don't think that a woman really wants to, deep down inside, I think a woman, and, and you can speak to this, Bria, but I think a woman wants a man to be a leader, to be someone who says, here's what we should do as a family. Here's what's going to be good for us. Now, we can all agree that no woman wants a man to be a, a dictator. No. Or, no. you know, a fascist or a pig. <laughs> no. and, and any man who is those things has not followed the lead of Jesus, right. who is the ultimate husband. Yeah, that's different. It's, yeah. Mm -hmm. Your husbandship and leadership should reflect the husbandship and leadership of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think deep down inside, every woman wants that. Even unbelieving women want that. I think so. I mean, maybe there's a few. But I think the ex those are the exceptions, not the rule. I think generally, and Bria, you can speak to this, yeah. women want a man who leads. I think... Uh, Definitely, I agree. It's nice to have a man lead you, um, especially when you're both Christians and you're equally yoked and going about that path. But uh, for women, I, I believe and I've seen that we're more uh, spiritually led when it comes to prayer. Absolutely. And that's and a fact. All that that's stuff. a good point. So if the woman knows the Bible mm -hmm. and she wants to teach the Bible to the kids, absolutely. Go for it. Do mm -hmm. it. 100%. Because you've got that gift, and you know, and you're right. Yeah. A lot of women, especially in our church, the women love to do that. That's not a bad thing. And with other women as well. And, and with other women. And yeah. Right. Um, if the man does not know the Bible, he should probably not teach the Bible. But he should get to know the Bible. <laughs> but at the same time, he might not be either have the time or the energy or the emotional quotient to do that. Right. He needs to make a living. And, he needs to, and so let's not, conflate, let's not conflate teaching the Bible to leadership. Like, the, the, and Mark Gunger says this too, and I agree 100%. If the woman knows the Bible better than the man, let her teach the Bible to the children. But if the man can do it, let him do it. Right. It's, but at the same time, the leadership of the family is still the responsibility, yep. biblically, of the man. Mm -hmm. And so him not teaching the Bible does not make him not a leader. <laughs> he should know the Bible, but he might not have the gift to communicate that to their children, to his children, as much as his wife does. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. My wife most of the time teaches our children the Bible, way more than me. Now, I do know the Bible, <laughs> but she's very good at it. She's very good at teaching the children, and she loves to teach our children about Jesus. She has conversations with them. She prays with them. She goes through the Bible with them. And that's wonderful. Right. So women, don't go nagging your husband because he doesn't do that. It doesn't make him not a leader because he doesn't do that. It's, there's leadership, and then there's biblical instruction. Mm -hmm. Of course, both of you as Christians have the responsibility to become more biblically literate. This is not an excuse to not... Read the Bible and know it. Okay, so then he goes on and he says this, verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Okay, this is a crazy text. What is he talking about? <laughs> First off, let's, let's concede that Paul believes that it is proper for, in the church, a woman to pray or prophesy. But please also understand that prophecy is not the same as preaching or expounding the word. And you can go to other texts in Paul's writings, particularly to Timothy and Titus, that clearly delineate that in the public assembly, the teaching of the word of God is the responsibility of the male leader of the church. In other words, the, the, the expounding of the doctrinal truth of the word of God should be the responsibility of pastoral uh, men who are in pastoral position. That is clear in the 
in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. But here he says, a woman absolutely can prophesy. Well, what's the difference between expounding the word and prophecy? Expounding the word is you go through the word and you teach it for the public assembly or through the internet virtual assembly that we have here today. But prophecy is that spontaneous word given through the Holy Spirit to a member of the church in the gathering, in the public assembly. Now, we don't do this on the weekend, but we do this sometimes in our small groups and other places where we allow that, ha- that to happen. It's spontaneous. The Holy Spirit speaks, and that person speaks through the spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit. That's called prophecy. And Paul says, look, Corinthians, you're into this. We get it. You want to prophesy. You want to pray. You want to do these things out loud in your services. That's wonderful. But you've got to do it right. It's got to do it in a, you've got to do it in a way that is respectful to the traditions of Scripture and to the into your contemporary audience in which you live. And how you engage in these corporate matters of worship uh, are very important because you have to be light and salt, and you also have to be distinct and charitable to the world uh, in which you live. So in verse 6 he says, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful, is it disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, let's get some contextual information here, shall we? We need this. Contextually, in Paul's day in 1 Corinthians, or in 1st century Corinth, there were two religious cults that were in, pra- in practice. The first one is the Roman imperial cult. The Roman imperial cult. That meant that, by law, a Roman had to believe that the emperor was God. This was the Roman imperial cult. Now, if you ascribed to that cult, whenever you went to worship anywhere, as a man, you would put a hat on to say, I am part of the Roman imperial cult. Okay, so a man covering his head in those days with a hat or any kind of head covering was a sign that I am part of and I ascribe to the idea that Caesar is God. The second cult that was was pertinent only to the Corinthian congregation was the cult of Aphrodite because the temple of Aphrodite was up on the hill in Corinth and there's still the ancient remains of that temple still to this day. And in that temple, the shrine prostitutes were women with their head shaved and uncovered. Okay? So now do you see what Paul's addressing here? Yep. He's saying, when you come into the church of Jesus, mm-hmm. <laughs> men, if you have your head covered, you are disgracing your head, which is Christ. Because you are saying Caesar's God, and that's not true. Jesus yep. is God. You know? Thank God we don't have an imperial cult in America. We have a democracy and a republic. And so we don't ever ascribe the president as some kind of God. Unfortunately, a lot of people fall into this trap because they have no religious faith, and so they put all their faith into the president, and they get mad about who is or who is not in the White House. Right. Uh, inordinately mad, okay? But when, you're, when your trust is in, the, is, is in the risen Christ who reigns at the right-hand side of God the Father for all eternity, you know, you can take a little bit less energy out of your heart for who or who may not, who, for who is or who may not be in the White House, you know. Um, but anyway, Paul's saying, look, if you come in, men, and, and by the way, also, putting a, a head covering on in the, in the ancient world, in the Roman times, was also a status symbol for men. So this is like, you know, kind of showing I'm important and I'm a, I'm a big okay. high roller, I'm a power player in the culture. <laughs> and so to put your head on, to put your head on, to put your hat on <laughs> and come to church was saying two things. Number one, you worshiped Caesar as God, which mm-hmm. was uncalled for for Christians. And number two, it was also putting your own status um, front and center for everybody to see. And we can do that still to this day in different ways. Yes. You know, in different ways, you know, men, sometimes I think, and I say this all the time, men care more about Tom Brady than they do about Jesus Christ <laughs> in the church. Like men, men get more emotionally involved in how the Patriots play than in the fact that Jesus Christ is risen. And that really troubles me. And so we can almost have a correlation there. It's not a complete correlation, but there is a common correlation there. And then when you come into the church, you know, it should be about Jesus. It should be about Christ. Don't let your social status be an issue so that when you come to the church, you can sit next to that person who might not be on, a, on the equal playing field of you uh, socially or economically. So what? Yeah. In Christ, we're all one. You know? yeah. And again, the races, too, should all come together under the banner of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't have white churches and black churches. We should have one church, Amen. one church filled with people from all walks of life who ascribe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right. You know, So what he's saying here is, 
Guys, if you cover your head, you are ascribing to a cultural mandate that is completely counter to Christian truth and discipleship. And then he says to women, if you shave your head, if you don't wear your head covering, you're basically acting like a prostitute in the church. You're looking like a temple shrine prostitute to Aphrodite, and you can't look like the world, you can't look like that and be part of the church. And so today it's different, friends. So let me be the first to say, no, if a woman has short hair today, we don't think that she's a shrine prostitute to the, to the god Aphrodite. No. <laughs> we don't it's have that It's just a cute problem. haircut. It's a cute haircut. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Bria. It's a cute haircut. It's, it's, she just likes her hair short. And nobody's going to look at a woman with short hair and say, oh, temple shrine prostitute. Um, <laughs> so today is different. But are there correlations for women today? Because we just talked about men with the Patriots and football and all those kinds of things that they can get caught up in. But what about the correlation for women? And I think that there is a correlation. I think that women have got to guard as Christians, what they put on social media. Because social media tends to be more of a female-oriented thing. And they're always putting up the selfies, and they're always putting up the pictures. And so sometimes a woman will be broadcasting all of her goodies on social media. And, and by goodies, I'm not talking about cakes and pastries. <laughs> okay, <yeah. laughs> all right, I, I, you know, we're talking, you know what I'm talking about. And, and, and look, there is, there is nothing wrong with a selfie, but there is definitely something wrong when the selfie becomes sexually suggestive, overly sexually suge- suggestive for a Christian. Yeah. If you're not a Christian, do your thing. I don't care. You know? um, but, you know, if, a, if you're a Christian, there is something called purity, chastity. There is something called respect for your body, dignity, self-worth, value, value rooted in the work of Jesus for you and not in your sexuality. And I think that if you're always putting yourself out there as a Christian on social media in sexually subjective ways, you, are, you, you need to rethink this and re-root yourself in the fact that Christ shed his blood for you. You are beautiful. You are worth that to God. You are worth the blood of Jesus. And when you're, when you're constantly looking for self-worth on social media through your sexuality, it undermines that, that more sacred truth of who you are. Now, again, you know, putting pictures up is not a sin. I'm not going to sit there and say, oh, don't put any pictures up. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but we have to do it in a way that is rooted in the finished work of Jesus. There's also that affirmation factor there when you post a picture and you're getting a ton of likes. And yeah. if it's not a, a modest picture and you're getting all that likes, then, you know, you subconsciously start to think that that's okay and that's where your self-worth comes from. But yeah. you have to remember as a Christian that that's not what, that's what the world is calling you to do, but you get your self-worth from being in Christ and, and that love. And I think that that's a lot like what young women deal with a lot. Yes. I mean, I grew up with like MySpace and all that stuff. Yeah. So it was not like Instagram and Twitter. And there, like there are so many other platforms to get all of this from. Yes. So just me growing up, I had a lot of self-doubt as a woman, but I can't even imagine what young what girls like are today. going through today with like five or six different apps and trying to figure out like how to, how to get that love from your heavenly father, but also yes. like boys, you know, like right, it's, right, right. it's a very point. challenging. Yeah. Because there, that is like that, there is that, that fruit that mm-hmm. seems so delicious, yeah. you know, uh, the euphemism of the forbidden fruit for Eve. It seems so delicious. It makes me wise. It makes me popular. It makes me ex- accepted. It makes me valued. And yet there's a dark side to that fruit that we don't see. Uh, men will take advantage of that fruit. Men, you know, it just, it leads to more and more suggestivity. You always have to push the boundaries further. You always have to have that more, that more sexual pose maybe next time or whatever. And maybe you have to fake it in many respects with, you know, adjustments and Photoshopping and all that kind of stuff. And you fall into this trap of Mm -hmm. trying to find value in something that is a false idol. It will always let you down. Yes. It will not be fulfilling. So you got to be careful about that, ladies. You got to be careful about how you uh, portray yourself. My wife was showing me somebody on on Instagram yesterday, and 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 this woman is not a Christian. I don't think a Christian, not a devout Christian. If she is a Christian, <laughs> but the, you're suggestively all over social media, and and it's just very sad to see because this woman desperately needs um, a man, like one man to love her, and Christ. Christ's love to be real to her so that she will know she's beautiful and valued to her heavenly father and not to some, you know, yeah, but the guys uncontrolled who are, dude. who are commenting and putting yeah. a little fire, like, yeah, yeah she's hot. So not they helpful. don't know Christ. They don't know Christ. That's right. And do you really want to be fawned over by people who have no respect for Christ? Yeah. 
Are you crazy? Do you know what? There's they a passage. one thing. Huh? A guy wants the, one absolutely. thing. Absolutely. Paul says in another passage, it is shameful to even say what the unbelievers do in secret. You know, if they're putting it on television today, imagine what they're doing behind closed doors, yeah. for heaven's sakes. I'm telling you, it is far worse. Um, and then there's, so in Corinth, the, the, the women were th- using their Christian liberty to dress however they want. And Paul says, look, there's a dignified way to present yourself as a daughter of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And it is not the way the world does. So you've always got to be, again, distinctive, light and salt, but at the same time, not offensive and not, you know, uh, uh, arrogant to the unbeliever. It's, there's, a, there's a balance there, right? Yep. And it's a... And it's a quality is a quality balance um i'm also thinking of dressing the church now i don't see problems in our church okay i look and i check and i don't see i don't see women flaunting it when they come into our building but i think that we have a um i think that we have a uh uh christianized baptized you know sense especially in new england with the cath with the catholic mindset like when you go to church you better not be you know Dressing promiscuously. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They would tell you in the Catholic Church. Yeah, they would yeah. tell you. So we, we don't need to see these, this problem. But again, what it was the, the problem that was in first century Corinth was they were doing that. And Paul says, you got you to gotta not do that. This is not a good Christian witness. And then he goes on. He says, look, verse 7. For a man ought to not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, Paul's going to go on a tangent from creation. He's going to say, listen. To understand gender, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. He's going all the way back. When he, when he talks about image and glory of God, he's going all the way back to Genesis 1, 28. And he's talking about how in the beginning, God created them male and female. So whenever you want to get into a discussion about what does the Bible say about genders, what does the Bible say about sexuality, what does the Bible say about marriage, you, you cannot go back to Deuteronomy. You cannot go back to Exodus. You cannot go back to even the craziness of the families of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, these people were nuts, okay? <laughs> they were marrying all kinds of people, having sex with everybody, raping their sister. It was ridiculous. Don't, don't think that that's giving us some kind of you know, allowance to do these crazy things. You have to go all the way back to God's original intent in the created order. He creates all the world, the visible world, then he creates man in his image, and then from man he creates a woman, and he puts them together as man and wife. So God's original intentions, according to Genesis 1 and 2, are marriage is one man, one woman for life. And there are two genders. There is male, there is female. And these two genders, listen, are equal in worth. They are equal in worth. Just because there's different roles for men and women in the family does not make make the male more important or the female more important or the female more valuable or the male more valuable. That's nonsense. They're both equally valuable in God's image. And, And so then... Lastly, according to Genesis, these two genders in the marriage relationship have separate functions. Man was to work the ground. Man was to, you know, tend a garden, rule and subdue. And women were, to, were a suitable helper, according to the text, to come alongside that man. And by the way, suitable, suitable helper, the word helper in a Septuagint translation is the same word in the, English, in, the, in the New Testament that is used to speak of the Holy Spirit. So when suitable helper is used to describe the wife is using the same term as the Holy Spirit that is used, that the same term is used of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. This is not a degrading term, is what I'm saying. This is an honoring term. God gives man a woman, a helper, suitable for him. And the image of God is cl- only clearly seen in proper order and full complementarity of male and female roles in that relationship. A man shows God as loving and sacrificial by loving and leading his wife. A woman shows submission and trust in her husband's leadership as Christ submitted himself to God, so on and so forth. And, and so there, is these, there are these roles in marriage that are important, authority and structure and submission. And let me also add this to men and women in marriages right now who are struggling with this stuff. Can I just, can I just say to you individually and just listen to me, you stop waiting for your marriage partner to do what they should do biblically before you do it biblically. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? Like That's men, good. stop waiting for her to submit before you lovingly lead and sacrifice for her. Right. And women, stop waiting for him to lovingly lead and sacrifice before you submit. You know. So we we see that this is the role 
from Genesis of men and women in marriage. Okay, again, this is not saying that all males are supposed to lead all women. This is in marriage. This is in marriage relationship. All right. So yes, a woman can lead a company out there in the world. Who cares? Wonderful. She may be more gifted than a man to do that. That's not the Bible's not speaking to that. The Bible's speaking to marriage because marriage is a key component of family and social structures. Yep. And where we deride and undermine those social structures in the family, the social the social climate deteriorates dramatically. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let me just say one more thing about um, C.S. Lewis when he talked about submission. This is fantastic because I was talking about this in the pre-meeting. I want to share it here. Here's what he says ingeniously about wives submitting. It's, I love it. It's a direct quote from Mere Christianity, which if you haven't read Mere Christianity, you should. It should be required reading for every Christian. <laughs> but he says this, If there must be a head, why the man? Well, firstly, there is, is there any serious wish that it should be the woman? <laughs> no, that sounds bad. But he says, As I have said, I am not married myself, but as far as I can see, even a woman who wants to be the head of her own house does not naturally admire the same state of things when she finds it going on next door. She is, my, she is much more likely to say, poor Mr. X. Why he allows that appalling woman to boss him around <laughs> the way she does is more than I can imagine. But meanwhile, she's bossing her husband around. <laughs> and he says, listen, you know, women, you don't want, you see that in another woman and you deride it, but you have it in your own self. And so why is it wrong for that woman, but right for you? And again, it's just part of the human condition. It's hard in our own pride to see our own failures and our own mistakes. It's easy to see it in other people's lives. You know why, why Jesus says, if you see the speck of dust in your friend's eye, you don't, you got the log in your eye. I mean, you know, take the log out first. Anyway, getting back to the topic about men and women, verse 8 and 9, he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And so he's going back again to creation. And what, I, what he's basically saying is that men are made to be men and women are made to be women. And this is not to be derided and is not to be confused. So let me bear down here a little bit more. Let me press in. We need men to be men in society. We need women to be women. And, and, and society is at large is losing this. Yeah, I love what Adrian Rogers says. He, he said it so, so eloquently. He says, everybody knows that a woman is infinitely superior to a man at being a woman. <laughs> and a man is infinitely superior to a woman. At being, a, at being a man. But God has given a chain of command and it has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. Um, and then he, he says a joke, which is funny. He says, someone has said that the women is the weaker sex, but they outlive us by seven years. <laughs> so I don't know how that works. <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> and then he said this, he says, someone has said that the weaker sex is the stronger sex because the weaknesses of the stronger sex for the weaker sex. <laughs> You have to read that twice to get it. Yeah. Basically, what he's saying is men are weak for women, and that's why they're actually the weaker sex when they claim the woman is weaker sex. Anyway, moving on. Going on in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, what's up with angels? And, the, and, and you say, where is this coming? This is coming out of left field. Well, what he's talking about is that in the church gathering, what we have to remember is, there are, there are angels in our midst. And I don't think we realize this enough. But yeah. when we gather to the church, the angels are there. And by the way, the scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, that angels learn from us. This is also backed up in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that, that the church is a testimony to the spiritual principalities and powers. Those are angels. The church declares the manifold wisdom of God to the powers of the age and the unseen powers of, uh, of the spiritual realm. And so... When we gather as a church, when we respectfully live out our faith and worship with dignity and respect for each other in our gender-specific roles and we, and we don't blur those lines, we are reflecting the glory of God even to angels that are present with us. And by the way, that's why you should come to church and not just watch us online, friend. Because the angels are in present with us. Right. Okay, They're not at your Amen. home. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, going on. Verse 13, he says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? In other words, is it proper for her to pray when she's acting like a prostitute? Absolutely not. He says, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. And so uh, let's get into men here for a moment. You know, we all know, and Shane, you're very familiar with this, in the 1980s and 90s, uh, it made long-haired men sexy. Oh, yeah. Because of bands like uh, Motley Crue, Metallica, Metallica <laughs> Poison. Oh, yeah. Remember Poison? Oh, my gosh. They were like Poison. a bunch of girls. 
<laughs> Warrant. Warrant. White Snake. You know, <laughs> all, those, all those bands. But let's be honest. And here's what Paul is saying. By and large, in every, con- in every context, in every, you know, culture, men with long hair are not as regarded as men as much as men with short hair. This is just a cultural construct across cultures. Fact. And I hate to say this, but it's true. A man with long hair goes for a job interview and a man with short hair goes for the same job interview and they have the same qualifications. I guarantee you the man with short hair gets hired. Yeah, I agree, yeah. Again, this is not a Christian view. This is What Paul is saying is look at nature. Even nature attests to the fact that men should be men and women should be women. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying. We need men to be men. We need women to be women. Nature teaches us this. And, and, and again, back to transgenderism, you can change into a man or a woman, but biological males cannot produce children, cannot give birth. They, you know, they, they cannot gestate, whatever. We get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and biological <laughs> women are the only ones that can give birth. So when we hear about these men who are giving birth, they are biological women. Okay. Nature is teaching us. Okay. That men need to be men and women need to be men, women, and they are complementary and they reflect the glory of God. So all that to say this, in the church, we have a responsibility to bear witness to this. In the church, we have a responsibility to bear witness to the reality that men are created to be men and women are created to be women. Now, some of you might say, what are we supposed to do then with these people who are gender dysphoric and they think they're in the wrong gender and all that kind of stuff? I get it. I know they're out there. They're real. And they have, they have serious problems that should not be derided or made fun of or castigated. They should be helped. <laughs> but at the same time, sure. we should not undermine collectively and culturally and especially through education, the distinct distinctiveness and the the orderliness of male, female. And as, the, and as a church, okay, we have a responsibility to bear witness to these truths for our generation, even if our generation thinks we are off our rocker or outdated or old-fashioned and stubborn and fundamental Bible thumpers. <laughs> so what? Let them think that because I guarantee you that the end will justify the means and history will prove us right. Unfortunately, we are in a culture right now where this stuff is being highly questioned, and we're going to have to we're going to have to toe the line here. You know, even this even this talk. I'm sure some of you are like, "Wow, I can't believe he's talking about all this stuff." You might feel uncomfortable, but we have to talk about it. We have to bear witness to this truth because truth matters, and where we see it undermine society's struggle. Right. Last verse. Then we'll get to the questions. He says this, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, I love how he says that there. <laughs> if anyone is inclined to argue about this, uh, which I just want to say, there's always somebody willing to argue about this stuff. You know, and, and if you're a Christian and you have a friend at work that wants to argue about this stuff with you, don't argue. Don't argue. They're probably not believers. Leave them. Yeah. Let they them have their view. They probably just like to argue. Yeah. And they probably just like to argue. <laughs> they want to get you going. They want to yep. get you going. They want to get you fired up so that they can get you to swear, so they can get you, <laughs> you know, question yeah. your faith. <laughs> right? Yeah. So he says, look, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Right there, Paul says, this is for the church. This is for the church. Okay, so if you're not a believer and you hate all that we say about this stuff, so what? We're not asking you to live it. We're supposed to live it. We're not asking you to believe it. We're going to believe it. And I guarantee you that history will prove us right because God's word remains true forever. Um, But in doing so, we will disagree lovingly as best as we can. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live out our God-given nature-confirming gender roles and responsibilities with honor and glory for Christ. Number two, we're to stand apart from a disordered culture around us for the glory of Christ. That's what makes us different. Christian I'm saying this repeatedly again and again in the Sunday worship experience. We are, not, we are not made to fit in. We are born again to stand out. Right. And number three, we strive to make our public worship gatherings focused on Christ and not ourselves. Yes, we are modern. Yes, we are culturally relevant. Yes, we have light, smoke, camera, and action. But we do that ultimately, hopefully, for the glory of Christ and, uh, and not for the glorification of our own, our own selfishness. Mm-hmm. We're all growing in this. We're all doing our best, and uh, hopefully we'll get better. Any questions? I have a question. Um, 
just going back to submission and everything like that, I, I agree that men are, you know, designed to be men and women are designed to be women, but like everything in the Bible, it's taken out of context and, you know, the, all the arguments and discussions about um, gender, gender equality today, uh, obviously, like you said, a woman can go ahead and be a CEO, and I just want to back that up and say we're, we're not saying that women's only place is in the kitchen or in the house. No, um, the New Testament doesn't say that. Yep. No. The New Testament has Lydia being saved in Philippi, and uh, she is a dealer in purple. Mm-hmm. And uh, purple garments in the first century were one of the most expensive garments. I mean, they were like, you would be like Silicon Valley CEO level. Mm-hmm. You know, purple garments were extraordinarily expensive. Uh, the purple dye was very rare in the ancient world. So, and then she is like a pillar of that society. And through her, the gospel is, you know, takes root in Philippi. Yeah. Through her and the Philippian jailer. jailer. Another example is the woman at the well in John chapter 4, who goes back to the Samaritan village and brings the gospel to her fellow Samaritans. So it's not to say, again, that the woman is to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen all day. No way. Mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, in the marriage relationship, Scripture is clear. There, are, there is authority, there is headship, and there is to be leadership and submission. Yeah, I think the, it boils down to what does that look like? Because in the world, it looks like the men rules over the wife. Like the word submission is just thrown out with no clear example like how do you actually be a submissive wife how do you actually be uh, a husband that leads your wife and your family like what does that actually look like and and just in today there aren't real examples um in the family and on tv or anything like that um i've been blessed with my parents they hold that the bible up to that standards i mean my yeah. mom is strong and independent, but she also, sure. when need be, asks my dad, like, is this okay yeah. with you? Like, I think a, lo- a lot of it comes from, okay, so you're telling me to be submissive, but what does that look like? You're yeah. telling me to be a leader, but what does that look like these when it are, comes to the family? Yeah, these are definitely hard. Uh, you're right in saying that there's just not many good examples in today's world. And again, and we said this, I said this to you in the, in the pre-meeting, is don't get your don't get your leadership here from... Uh, society. Mm. You've got to understand that society is always going to have a mixture of truth and error, mm. but the scriptures are always bearing witness to truth in spite of that error. Right. Mm-hmm. So we can watch that happen in our culture, but we have to get back into the word. And that's why I said, you know, there is no excuse for Christians to not be in the word themselves and to look at this, look at the text of the scriptures and learn how to live these things out. And you need examples. And that's why we have small groups as well. Mm-hmm. That's why we have discussions around the small group environment for those people who are not raised like you, Bria, who were not raised like me with a loving, leading father and a submissive mother who was a strong woman Mm -hmm. and a woman who worked outside of the home, but yet submits herself to this day to my father, you know, and does and does so in a in a reverent way. But at the same time, not this dominated way, you know, because that's not my father either. So. That's the importance of Christian community. And we talked about this on the weekend. Like, you got to abide in the vine. Well, how do I abide in the vine? You got to get in the word and you have to get in community. You have to have a small group Mm -hmm. so that you can talk about these things. And you can, if you are a married couple and you are going through some garbage and it's not working, you can have someone that you can call and talk to who you can see godliness in them. You can see fruitfulness in them because the fruitfulness will be there, as as Jesus says in John 15. Mm -hmm. But you need somebody that you can talk to. What I find in the church is too many Christians are trying to do it alone. And they don't have anybody. You were fortunate. I was fortunate. Yes. Um, Shane, somewhat fortunate, I think. You had Catholic parents. Yeah. But they were, yeah, they were great parents. Yeah, they were the, my they, father. They were know, biblically, yeah. you know, roles-wise. They were like that. Right. I mean, in my own marriage now, we'd be married 22 years Friday. I mean. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And, we, there, uh, and so, so it's a partnership. Um, like, you know. It is a partnership. She's strong in, in other ways, and but you know it is a partnership. Day, but there is headship at the end of the day. Yeah, and at the end of the day, they're right. And so, where am I going to see that? And again, you're not always going to have those answers. So you got to be intentional here to go get them. Mm-hmm. And that is open your doors, open your heart to small group, open your heart to Christian community. Because if you just have only non-Christian friends, and you think I can be a strong Christian and have only non-Christian friends, you are crazy. You are kidding yourself. Not going to work. 
<laughs> Jesus himself started a small group before he started a public ministry. <laughs> um, you know, you got to have that. So that's what I would say. That's where you're going to see it. Okay. That's where you're going to see health. And our small group leaders, mm-hmm. you know, they pass this test. You know, you're not just made a small group leader because you want to be here. There's a, pe- there's a test. We got to say, are you living? A, you got to sign a little thing. I'm going to live a Christian life. I'm going to do my best. I'm, and when corrected according to the scriptures, I'm going to listen, mm-hmm. you know. So those, those avenues are in place here at Waters Church. And that's why, that's why Waters Church does what it does with small groups. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? A lot of amens today. Ooh, I like amens. <laughs> Wish I could hear them. Uh, <laughs> but... It was great to be with you today on The Deep End, and uh, good to have you here, uh, Bria. Thank you. Good Hope you enjoyed yourself. Yes. <laughs> and Shane. Thank you for having a, us. Always a pleasure to have you here as well. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. This was The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's Deep End podcast. We pray that you continue to grow in your faith and that you would serve and support your local church. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us this weekend at Waters Church. We are located at 57 John Deach Square in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. And you can join us every Saturday at 4 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. Make sure to stay tuned in for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.